All right. Welcome back to Namaste Podcast. It's been a minute since I've produced an episode in Namaste. I was shifting gears a little bit. And as we shift gears, we are going to start focusing on conversations about yoga, meditation, Ayurveda, healing through Eastern perspectives. And I'm so, so excited to have my good friend Kelsey on the podcast today. So let's go ahead and get started with Kelsey. Could you just introduce yourself? Tell people where you are physically in the world, where you are in your Mm -hmm. life and what is the work that you do? Hello. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on here. Um, I've been a follower forever because you're such an amazing person. So I am Kelsey. I'm coming at you from upstate New York. Just upstate, we call it that because it's not the city, but we're really not that far northern New York. Right in the middle of a big old snow blizzard today. So my work, I live in a rural area, and my work is kind of bringing yoga to a new community. And we're the only yoga studio within an hour, so a lot of my work is educating about what yoga is and kind of unlearning what yoga is for a lot of people as well. But I study yoga therapy specifically, and along with that comes a lot of Ayurvedic work, trying to improve accessibility for all people. So that's kind of my shebang. What do you mean by unlearning? What is it that people have picked up on over the years as far as what yoga is that you are in the work of unteaching? (laughs) Well, and especially in a rural community, we don't have a lot of access to like you know, big towns and all we see for yoga is like really flexible, acrobatic like poses on really fit people, often women, often young women. And so the unlearning piece is just kind of to see that there's number one, just so much more to a yoga practice than the physical aspect of it. But also that that's kind of why you do yoga is if you aren't flexible, if you don't have a lot of balance and you're looking to bring those things into your life, we really kind of have to fight a little bit. You know, we don't have the classic marketing troubles in terms of like why you should come to our studio and not the six other studios on the block. It's really just why should you try yoga as opposed to, you know, going to your local YMCA and, and lifting weights or something like that. Yes, yes. And Kelsey and I met in a yoga teacher training. And I can honestly tell you that when I first showed up at that yoga teacher training, I thought I was just going to learn the postures, the physical asana practice. Kelsey's right. There's so much more to yoga than just that. And my mind was blown for like two or three months straight, however long we were in that 200-hour training. My question for you, Kelsey, because you continued on and studied yoga therapy. So how does that weave into your work? What is yoga therapy? It's so magical. It is it's just such an amazing path to be on. So on in the process, after 200 hours, you know, a lot of people get done with their teacher training and feel like they're probably equipped to teach a class, but then that there's just so much more to learn about it. So I definitely had that feeling. And for a while, rather than taking teacher trainings, I went into the world of body work, which kind of ignited my love for mechanics and anatomy and just looking at the way bodies move, especially through pain and the way that the bodies hold pain and emotion. And then 
coming back into it, I started doing a yoga therapy program. Basically what it is, is that yoga therapy creates the bridge between Eastern and Western medicine. So if you've ever been in a situation where a doctor has said, hey, you should try yoga for this. It should be helpful. Then you go to your yoga studio and you're like, okay, well, there's 18 different styles to choose from and I can't do any of them. Or having that mismatch where you maybe have a certain condition that makes your body, you know, higher inflammation rate or something like really hot in the body. And you go to a hot yoga class and you're like, well, I don't feel better at all. And then you just stop trying yoga because you assume that you've done it. And so what yoga therapy does is kind of interjects and says, okay, well, we know a little bit more about what this condition is and what kind of yoga might be beneficial to your healing process. So we study with MDs, we study with PTs, we study with all kinds of Western medical professionals, and then we apply Eastern traditional yogic traditions, such as Ayurveda, and maybe some asana, maybe some breath work, a lot of seasonal living and seasonal eating, and just really looking into some of these ancient wisdoms and how they could apply to today's life. Absolutely. I love that. I didn't realize that there was an element of working with Western doctors and physical therapists and that kind of thing. I mean, it makes sense, but I don't know that that was, even as someone who's, I would consider myself in the yoga world, I didn't even know that much about yoga therapy. And you mentioned earlier about the educational piece that you are using in your community and how important that is. If you could relay a message to everyone in your community about yoga or yoga therapy, what would it be? Honestly, it sounds cliche, but just try it. Sometimes we get in our own way where we think that we have to be really good at something in order to practice it. That's why we call it a practice because you're never going to reach the perfect yoga practice. It's an ongoing, continuously changing thing. If you're able to access a yoga therapist who might have a little bit more information about what kind of a practice would help to support you during whatever stage you are in your life or whatever it is that you're kind of seeking. Use that resource, you know, and and don't think that it's a one-stop shop. Your yoga therapist could talk to your physical therapist and help you between sessions or, you know, with your doctor. If you're not quite sure what these words mean, if your doctor is open to letting you kind of bring a yoga therapist in with you, then they actually might have a little more insight on on what some of these things mean. You know, it's like we're all in charge of our own health, but it gets really difficult to know who to trust with translations and figuring it all out when you can just try something and try it a couple times too. Like the first time is going to be difficult because it's something new and you're not going to feel super great at it. It can be a little discouraging when you don't master something right away, but if you can just stick it out for like a month, two months, talk to your teacher, talk to the people who you're, you're seeking this help with and, and let it be an open conversation. There truly is, like I'm a big believer that there really is a yoga for everybody. Whether that's physical or not is another question though. <laughs> mm, yeah. So someone wants to start a yoga practice. Where do they start? I created a new thing. It's called Let's Start Yoga. <laughs> and it's just a month of class where you can come anytime and you get one-on-one work as well. So a lot of people 
kind of shy away from doing private work because you can go to a yoga class for 15 or $20, but a private session is going to cost you, depending on where you live, anywhere from like 60 to 150 And some people are just like, well, that's crazy. That's a huge amount of money. But if you think about starting a gym and not working with a personal trainer, it's kind of the same thing. Like you can get a lot of information from public classes and from YouTube and from other resources. But when it comes to tailoring a practice to your specific needs, it can be so beneficial to just take that investment and really work with one person one-on-one so that you can really identify what things you're interested in and which classes support that. So I'm a big fan of private yoga as well. Absolutely. What's interesting is that since graduating from yoga teacher training five years ago, I've never taught in a studio. I've taught private lessons. I've taught at retreat centers. I've taught it in apartment complexes, but I've never taught in a traditional studio. And I know that just from talking with you and some of our other friends who have been heavily involved in studio life, there are a lot of challenges that come up with running a yoga studio and holding space for your community in that way. And so one of the things I want to talk about, because as this podcast becomes more and more targeted towards yogis, I want to talk about those things that are difficult that we're dealing with and how everyone is moving through them. I want to quickly dive into your role in a rural studio. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's different every day, that's for sure. So I manage a studio. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have seen the recent documentary about Bikram and the corruption. You know, who are we to think that this industry is beautiful as it is not tainted by corruption and power and money and all of those same things that are all over the world. So when it comes to studios, there's a little bit of, I guess I would say conflict between do I run a business or do I run a yoga studio? And it's really difficult to kind of walk that line because somebody comes in and they kind of say, oh boy, that's an expensive class. And you just want to give them yoga. You're like, you know what? Just donate what you can, (laughs) come on in. But if you do that every time, you can't have a studio anymore. How are you going to pay your teachers? Like the whole thing. So I've been really fortunate in our rural area, the owner of the studio and I have this really wonderful vision together where, you know, we don't want that for our studio. We want everybody involved in it to feel like they can actually live that yogic lifestyle of seva and, you know, giving what they can, but then also being compensated for it. Sometimes it's like, well, if I were a business, I should do this. But if I'm a yoga studio, I should do that. And letting our intuition guide a lot of the big decisions that we have to make. And luckily, because we are so rural, like we don't have any real direct competitors. So our biggest challenge is just, like I was saying, getting the word out and getting people in the door because once they start, they're there. So that's probably our biggest challenge. But it's been so nice and refreshing now that I live in this rural place to see that, you know, you can actually have a studio and hold up your values and provide a good service and receive payment for it and do it all just let it all flow. A lot of us have a lot of fear about what's the bottom line, what are the margins, and all of the other things that come with running businesses. But when you have a studio, you have to be a little bit more lenient with that sometimes. And then just trusting that you're calling in the right people and that it'll all come around at some point. (laughs) 
So some people think I'm crazy when I talk about that, running a business and, and trusting my intuition and not going with the usual, but I think it worked. We've been blessed so far. It absolutely works. You can have it all. You can have the studio that serves your community in a big way. You can have the financial abundance. You can have whatever it is that you and your community members need. It's interesting that you said that people look at you like you're crazy when you <laughs> come at it from that angle. <laughs> That's manifesting. What? You know, like we've established things like, okay, well, paid vacation doesn't include time spent in training. So, you know, I have paid vacation, but I have paid training time too. And it's our accountant is like, wait, what? <laughs> and it's just like, you know, some things are super important and some things are not. And for us, this is one of the things that we value most. So we're going to go for it. And then we're serving from a bigger cup because we've taken care of our needs. At the end of the day, it actually works out a lot better for everybody. Maybe someday we'll, we'll write a business book and get that into the schools. <laughs> yes, how to run a spiritual business. I feel like being in the space that I'm in online, I get a lot of that content, mm -hmm. the running a, of a spiritual business. And is that something that you feel like you're consuming as well? Yeah, I really haven't seen a lot of it out there. I guess I really do just like gut feeling everything, you know, and as you speak so much about, which is so powerful, it's like the more you start trusting that, the more on point it becomes because you kind of fine tune that intuition so that you really are thinking outside of the realm of fear and outside of the realm of scarcity because you're doing it, you know, you learn from mistakes and then you get to use that as an opportunity for the future to guide you. In general, I think I haven't seen a whole lot of that information, but I definitely would love to so that number one, I can educate myself and then push some of my, my fellow friends towards it as well when they laugh me out of the dinner party. Like, oh, that's not a real business. <laughs> it's yoga. <laughs> it's both. Like, wait, but I'm happy with my job. You know, that's actually a really fun point that I've kind of come to realize in the last couple of weeks is quite often people will be like, oh my gosh, you are so busy. You're constantly working. You know, how do you do that? I'm like, well, it's nice that you think that is a compliment, number one, and also that maybe that that's the energy I'm putting out there, but I honestly don't feel like I do anything I don't like to do. If I appear to be busy, it's because I like to kind of work in a more energetic fashion, but I have all the time that I could ever want to do all the things I love to do. It's kind of like... I don't know, you just have to maximize what you love to do and make that a part of your life. And then you're not necessarily always so busy, but people might think that, I guess. Yeah. People are always like, Katie, you hustle harder than anyone that I know. I'm yeah. like, I do not hustle. Like I am pulled by this, you guys. Like it's a pull feeling, not like a push. Like I have to show up. I have to right. go to work. It's like, no, I want to, I get to, like, this is my service and purpose in the world. The other topic that I wanted to talk to you about was environmentalism and nutrition. Tell me more about this topic and how it's intertwined in your work, why it's important to you. Yeah. Whenever I go to a dinner party, people would be like, you know, warning me that this isn't vegan. And I'm like, I'm certainly not vegan either. <laughs> I know that that's going to sit a certain way with certain people listening. It's just like the big thing that yogis kind of have conflict over is like, 
what is ahimsa? How does it extend to the animals? How does it extend beyond what my diet is? But I guess I kind of have a unique perspective because I do live out in the woods where we have so much access to land. You can really grow a respect for the land around you. For some people that extends to animals and others it doesn't and there's no judgment for either. Someone who eats meat indiscriminately packaged in the grocery store with without a clue of how that animal spent its life and without any gratitude for the way it lost its life is not necessarily showing that gratitude and you might eat that food. And, and I think that that's kind of where some illnesses start. It's not necessarily just because of what the contents of the food is, but the way in which it's been eaten. And then on the flip side of that, you know, if you are able to access land where you can hunt and then you harvest a wild deer, I don't want to sound crude, but kind of have the saying, it's one bad day. It's a full life with one bad day. And then to take that food and use every last bit of it is kind of what we are certain to do. I eat a lot of things that people would kind of turn their nose to. Like liver is the first thing and the easiest thing for most people when they're trying to start looking into like organ meats. But we eat kidneys, we eat heart, we eat liver. We take all of the bones and make them into bone broths. It's like one animal can last my partner and I an entire winter and our dog. Our little threesome can eat all year on one animal that had been harvested with love and respect for a lot of people that maybe they're just like, oh, this girl does not know what she's talking about already. And, and that's fine. And I just question everybody to examine, you know, what about meat is different than plants because how should we be so sure of ourselves that plants don't also have feeling and lives and you should have the same gratitude for eating a plant that you do for eating a meat and then you know it's up to you how much of that makes sense in your diet and i've been vegan and i've been vegetarian for many years you know my body didn't do super well on it and i certainly could have given it a bigger effort but just it didn't suit my lifestyle and I found myself eating a lot of foods that I wouldn't normally eat and that wouldn't normally grow near me I had to supplement with a lot of things that came really far away now that I'm living in New York and I have the access to the land I go to the grocery store maybe once a month for a couple things that we don't get from the land everything else is grown on the land is foraged in the in the woods or harvested through other means. So a lot of the things that I do too, you know, if we're not hunting, we also will talk to people who are hunting and just take whatever they don't want to include in their diet. So that means we have a ton of organ meat. <laughs> Finding ways to to really use and respect the entire animal. And I don't think that that makes me better than anybody else. I don't think that makes me different at all. It's just, it's a way of eating where you actually take the time to be grateful for the life, whether it was an animal or plant or anything else. I think that that is definitely an environmentally driven value that I have is just trying to get things as close to home as possible, trying to do the work to store up when it's abundant, fasting when it's not. It's not for everybody. And it's kind of come to my attention recently, which is a super interesting point is, you know, as the world gets a little bit more into ketogenesis and fasting, intermittent fasting. The funny thing is all of these studies that show how beneficial it is for humans to do so do not include women ever because of women's menstrual cycles and the hormones 
make it really difficult to actually track the results and get consistent results. So women are excluded from many scientific studies. That kind of was a big flag for me that I'm now looking into like, hmm, maybe I should be a little bit more informed about this. But it's just part of the process of continuously questioning, continuously learning, and not getting too stuck in any one thing because some hot topic issues, like whether it's good or bad to eat meat, you know, I think the answer is constantly changing depending on your surroundings and depending on your body at the time. I don't know if that kind of wraps it all in there, but I do have a lot of people coming to me like, oh, you know, I just love yoga, but I just don't know if I can give up meat for it. And it's like, you have to do the best that you can do. At some point, maybe it will make sense for you to stop eating meat because I kind of have a rule of thumb. If you can't take a life, you shouldn't eat it. <laughs> so if you can harvest plants, then that's great. If, if you don't feel like you could take a life of an animal, then maybe that's not for you. But growing that respect, like full disclosure, I, I don't do the hunting. So I'm kind of cheating my own answer to that. But I'm just being involved in like chickens and turkeys and stuff like that. I've definitely been involved in the process and kind of comes from that place of just having a deepening respect for what you put in your body. And knowing that that becomes who you are, no matter what you eat. It, it's the old saying for a reason, you, you very much are what you eat. So if you have access to healthy sources of meat and that keeps you healthy, then great. And if not, that's awesome too. I think everybody should just have a little bit more space to give on that so that it's not so much of a big deal, you know, like it changes the way you think about somebody when you hear that they do or don't eat meat will have a whole lot of judgment. And I think it's one of the most ironic things of yoga. Yeah. It started to become something like, politics or religion or sex like you don't talk about whether or not someone eats meat or like judge them for it or it's just such a stigma in the yoga world and I totally agree with that because I do eat meat and I have been a vegetarian in the past and that did not serve my body like it just didn't and again like you said I probably could have done better I I know more about cooking now, but mm -hmm. now because I know more about cooking, because I know about, you know, what I've seen just driving through California, like miles of dog houses and cows, baby cows tied up to those dog yeah. houses. Like I do not want to eat that meat. That is disgusting to me. Tucker's brother Sawyer brought up a venison that he shot and killed um, on a hunting trip in Texas, I was like, okay, I trust the hunter. I am excited about this meat. <laughs> like, <laughs> it only yeah. had one bad day. That particular animal was like the bully of the area. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, okay, when I eat this meat, I'm not going to turn into a bully, but I am going to use this energy, this powerful masculine energy in my manifestations and in my embodiment going forward. And like spent time I'm truly honoring that animal and the spirit that is in this realm still, but is now becoming a part of me as well. Yeah. And it's so powerful if you have the opportunity to spend time with the animals. Like some people get really kind of freaked out by farmers who can like kill an animal that they've been raising. But when you've had that much time to spend with that animal, and it doesn't have to be like in killing an animal. It could be in milking a cow. Like <laughs> you've spent an hour milking a cow, you are going to damn well appreciate the milk that comes out of the cow and the yogurt that you make with that milk and the butter that you make and all these amazing things that come from it. 
And it's questionable whether or not that's something that humans have to have. But if you have that relationship and it suits you and it serves your body's purpose, then maybe you can turn that into something really beautiful to then give back. It helps that energy cycle a little bit. We have a crock pot full of bones right now and a crock pot full of bear fat right now. And it's just like making that switch from Texas to New York, a big part of that was definitely the access to food because, you know, now we have probably 80% of our diet is wild. And my partner, Chad, he's just like good. Like that is his passion in life. So it makes it a lot easier on me to not have to be doing all of that stuff. And I, I just do what he tells me pretty much because he just knows but <laughs> something like as simple as, you know, picking mushrooms and letting them dry in the sun. And then you rehydrate them in the winter and you get all the vitamin D that soaked up in those mushrooms from the summertime sun. This is the way that we're meant to live. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be going to New York to visit you because I want to dry out some mushrooms in the summer sun with you. <laughs> okay. Last topic that I wanted to shift into is about plant medicine and how it's deepened your yoga practice. Tell me more. <laughs> well, yes, I've done some dabbling in plant medicine. And it's kind of funny because prior to this phone call, I just did a, a cold dip with some friends. So there's a huge snowstorm out. The pond was mostly frozen over and it's spring fed. So there's like a little piece that doesn't freeze and when you get in that water and sit in it. <laughs> and that to me is essentially what happens when, when you start dabbling in plant medicine is that you, you have the opportunity and you don't necessarily take it all the time, but you have the opportunity to just like sit in your shit <laughs> for a long time. And I think a lot of people share the sentiment, the more that you do it, the more you realize that you don't actually need the plant medicine to do it. Like eventually the goal is to just be able to access those realms through meditation and through practices of other sorts. You know, I mean, even just like holotropic breath work, a lot of people have been doing that. It's just getting you to a different level of consciousness, but you don't necessarily have to add anything to your life to get to it. But the fun part is that if you do choose to go down that route, it provides you with the opportunity to confront things that maybe haven't had the strength to, and then you don't really have a choice because it's just like, you're here and you're in it and this is how it's going to be. So buckle up and breathe. So like throughout every experience that I've had, and the most intense have definitely been, you know, like really hard to find breath and really hard to connect with the grounding sensations around you and you kind of sometimes just like lose your sense of humanness which you know from a yoga perspective you're accessing a higher realm of your spirit sometimes that's not so beautiful and sometimes it is and I think there's beauty in all of it I think you can start to draw some connections to I was recently traveling in Morocco and I swear to God, the whole time I felt like I was in an ayahuasca ceremony, just like stumbling through this labyrinth city and streets and like completely lost and you're never grounded and you're just like, where am I? And all of these different thoughts come up and your fears come up and that scarcity comes up and you start making up all of these stories for, you know, why you shouldn't be there or why it's not worth your time. And if you've ever been on a trip, like <laughs> funny that we call it a trip, right? Like it's the same thing when you're working with plant medicine. There's, there's that critical moment where you resist and you resist and you resist. And then 
when you take a few deep breaths and you just kind of, for lack of a better word, you surrender into it and you let go into the flow. And for me, something that's really been a huge tool for that is the sound work, finding a voice, letting it be heard and singing and mantras to help ground and just other ways of kind of bringing it back into the heart space. Because when you're singing, you're exhaling. Basically, singing is breath work. And the longer you exhale, so the longer you hold that Mariah Carey note, that Whitney Houston, like, really let it go. I mean, you're, you're doing breath work. You're lengthening your exhale, which is activating your parasympathetic nervous system, which is telling your body to relax and chill out because you're fine. And that's what we do in yoga. So finding how your yoga practice can support a plant medicine practice, but then also how your plant medicine practice can reinforce that yoga practice and remind you that like what you do on the mat and what you do in a class, it's just a little microcosm. It's a practice for the real thing outside. So whatever you go through in a yoga practice, it's training you to breathe when you go through that in, in a real life situation. And then the plant medicine just kind of adds a layer of intensity, I think might be the best way to say it. But it all kind of makes sense and comes together. If you feel called to do it, you have to be pure with your practice leading up to that because that's a huge part of what's going to maximize your experience. Every time I go, I still like bring my little mala from our teacher training because it's like my safe space. My friends are with me. This is okay. We're going to be all right. We're going to come out through the other end. Have your, your totems and <laughs> your safe spaces to bring with you too. That's always important. Hello, beautiful soul, Katie J here. I'm briefly interrupting this amazing episode to invite you to connect with me on IG. Through Instagram, I share weekly trainings, community and client highlights, and host monthly new moon ceremonies to help you realign with and manifest your goals with ease. Follow me on IG at Womanifester. That's W O M. A-N-I-F-E-S-T-E-R. I love connecting with like-minded women manifesting their best lives. Okay, let's get back to the episode. You know, just sitting with yourself in Shavasana and taking stock of your life and figuring out what are my desires, what are my needs, and then more difficult, like what's in the way of those. Looking at places of conflict in your life and then taking responsibility for your role in it. And I think that that kind of is what plant medicine does is it brings you to a place of conflict and it's like, okay, work it out. Like put your boxing gloves on and sort out your problems. Good parenting to your inner child. <laughs> what would you say to somebody who is curious about plant medicine, but is honestly scared about what could potentially come up? I think that there's a big misconception that like, You'll be there and something will just like rise up out of you and, and you have to deal with like that thing that happened in your life, <laughs> watching that thing replay and you're like going through it in your head. And I mean, it could totally happen that way, but I would say more often than, than not, it's more like you just have the most intense discomfort that you'll feel. You know, you have your boundaries and then plant medicine has her boundaries, just a few feet off in front of yours so it's like the actual boundary and where you think it is is where the the real play and the real work happens and and you might be taken just 
just outside of your comfort zone, but it's never ever more than you can handle. If you're in good hands, if you've done your research, if you've done your practice to make sure that, you know, you're entering into something that's trusted with a group that's trusted, it's never more than you can handle. The first time that I did it, I thought, oh my God, I've done this and I know about it. And that was so intense and so crazy. And then the next time I was like, I had no freaking clue what it really meant to be in that space because the first time was like the bunny slope of things and at the time it just had felt so so intense because I was like so ready to search for it and to ask for it and to go there and she was just like meh we'll give you a taste come back later and the most recent time that I went there was a call for seconds something inside me was like no you're like we're going to do it this time. And I did. And then immediately just like dropped off the face of the planet. And then that's where like the real stuff happened. So there was a choice in me that it was, I was ready and I knew I was ready. And it wasn't based on anyone else's perception. It wasn't based on my ego. That's when things changed for me. So if you're nervous going into it, it's not one of those things that's like, if you're nervous, it's going to be bad. Because a lot of people say that, but if your practice is strong, no matter what happens, it's all going to be good. It's just the intensity is nothing that we could ever understand or project or, or even imagine, you know, like it's not something you can control at all. So you have to be just totally ready to completely let go and, and say whatever happens, happens. And it could be insanely blissful which it quite often is, but those, those stories don't usually get told quite so much. <laughs> but it is the most beautiful practice that you could have if you're able to really take the full advantage of it. I love that. Thank you for sharing that, Kelsey. Are you specifically referring to ayahuasca ceremonies? Yeah, for that, yep. I will also add that part of, of that practice helped me to realize that like no matter what the spirit is that you are um, engaging with, whether it be, you know, ayahuasca or mushrooms or alcohol or coffee or other low level things that we don't consider to be, you know, they're, they're more mainstream. It's like, I, I remember thinking like, why would I ever think that going into a night with alcohol is any different than going into a night with ayahuasca. Like you have no control. You have no idea what's going to happen to you if you just let go and and you don't have mindfulness around it. So it really changed my perspective on alcohol. And I would imagine it could, you know, stretch to caffeine and any other, you know, I call them spirits. Try not to mix them. So maybe don't put vodka with your mushrooms. you just, you build a little bit more mindfulness about everything that you do. Yeah. It's like, why do they call alcohol spirits? Exactly. It's a plant spirit. (laughs) It's just in a different form. Yeah. (laughs) And, And talk about, you know, what I had said earlier about how should we think that plants don't have Um, spirits or once you've done something with plant medicine you realize quickly that there is an intelligence there that is beyond anything that humans can possibly conceive of so that kind of was another piece of why 
I stopped being so hard on myself for eating meat because it was like, it doesn't matter what you eat. It has intelligence. It has a spirit and everything deserves to have the same amount of love and care and gratitude, whatever it is that you're consuming. Mm. So well put. Thank you, Kelsey. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work and your studio? So my studio is called Tribe Yoga in Oneonta, New York. Um, Our owner is Polynesian and came up with this beautiful emblem to represent the tribe that she wanted to create when she moved to our town. There was no yoga studio and she was like, I'm not going to live here and raise my kids if there's no yoga studio. So we are building one and they will come. And then we certainly did. <laughs> my personal information, I'm really just on Instagram as myself, Kelsey.Lang. And hopefully soon in that bio, there will be a link to a professional um, Instagram called I Yourself. And that's where I plan to be putting out more content about Ayurvedic wisdom and how to live seasonally, how to eat seasonally, and how to adjust your practice, whether it be yoga or just general tips for living seasonally. Through that, I'll have a website as well. It's almost up and running. It's just kind of, it's winter time. <laughs> totally. We're still, we're still introspective here. Springtime is when we'll, uh, we'll really get the the fruits of the labors coming out. <laughs> yeah. So can you spell Kelsey mm-hmm. Lang for us? <laughs> yeah. I, it's one of those names that like is not hard, but it has several permutations. Mine is K-E-L-S-I-E dot Lang, L-A-I-N-G. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us on Namaste Podcast. Thank you. And Namaste across time and space to you and everyone out there. So grateful for this co-creation of space and celebration and everything that you've been creating for this community. So thank you. It really is my pleasure.